Welcome to the Eccles Business Buzz Podcast. My name is Lainsha Klingensmith, and today I am so excited to be discussing the topic of perseverance with Blake Murray. As co-founder and CEO at Divi, Blake is focused on recruiting top-tier talent and working with his executive team to create a culture aligned with the company's mission, to make money smarter. Blake co-founded Divi in 2016 after seeing firsthand the archaic and time-consuming processes required to capture and manage business payments. Under Blake's leadership, Divi has really redefined the financial tech stack for more than 7,500 businesses, raised $350 million in venture capital, and secured $1 billion in debt and capital market agreements. The leader in spend and expense management, Divi is now one of the fastest growing financial technology companies in the country. Welcome to the podcast, Blake. Thanks for having me. We are so excited to be talking to you today, especially in all of the exciting news surrounding Divi. So thanks so much for agreeing to join us. You bet. No, it's definitely a fun time right now. It's just a lot of excitement. It's a big outcome for everyone involved, especially considering just the time in which we were able to do it. I think a lot of us are really proud of, of we were able to build a rocket ship and, and just do it really quickly, which is fun. Yeah, absolutely. To kick things off and get us going today, would you mind telling me a little bit more about yourself, your background, and your connection to the Eccles community? Yeah, sure. I was raised in the Seattle area around tech my entire life. My dad was an early executive at Microsoft, so in Redmond, Washington. Prior to that, we lived in Palo Alto, Los Altos area, where he was an early employee at Apple. Oh, wow. Had his hands and fingerprints on a lot of Apple's kind of rise and organization and leading tons of different business units there and had close relationships with, I think, everyone that all of us would dream to have relationships with. And so he had a really storied, fun career working very intimately and closely with Steve Jobs and then going from Steve Jobs to Bill Gates. And so I kind of like to think, even if it's an irrational thought, a little bit of tech fairy dust had been sprinkled on me early on <laughs> in my life, but that wasn't my focus like at all, at all, at all at the University of Utah, and even for the five, seven, ten years after that. I went to the University of Utah from Seattle with a focus on animals and animal science and environmental science. And that's what my undergraduate degree was in environmental science. And if no you ask, kidding. it makes no sense. But I've loved animals like a true deep passion, not just like, hey, they're cute and they're fun, but a deep passion for animals for as long as I can remember. And I think if you ask my wife, she would say that I genuinely like animals more than I like people, or frankly, I get along with <laughs> animals more than I do with people. And it's just, I have a real genuine soft spot for them. And so went to U of U, got an environmental studies degree there. After that, I went and studied elephants in Kenya for a number of different kind of pit stops over there with a world-renowned scientist named Joyce Poole. And she is kind of the equivalent of what Jane Goodall is to chimpanzees and to primate research. Joyce Poole and another woman named Cynthia Moss are those equivalents to elephants, to both conservation and research. And so that was such just a crazy, wonderful experience, getting immersed into that scientific community, into just that lifestyle and living among the elephants was just a dream for me. From there, though, I had a path that I think is way more typical of just an entrepreneurial journey where you're sitting there and you're just trying to figure out what's next. It's those 
kind of lonely nights where you're struggling to figure out what you're passionate about. Because during the animal stuff, I had a pretty concrete feeling, man, this is going to be really hard to raise a family. And raising a family was uh, a priority of mine. And I already had a little boy at that point. And raising the family over in the bush, I was in a tent there, just didn't feel like a, a reality of the lifestyle that we wanted. And so I kind of bounced around. I dabbled with law school, got into law school, dropped out of law school, got into an MBA program, dropped out of an MBA program. And in each one was dropping out for different career opportunities that I thought would be really exciting and enticing. And where I ultimately cut my professional teeth was after dropping out of my MBA program, it was in the Phoenix area. And that was 2010 through about 2013. And I was a part of a a commercial real estate fund. Uh, And so it's kind of the equivalent of a venture capital fund, but the assets, instead of investing in startups, we were investing in commercial real estate, right? In office buildings and dental offices, doctor's offices. And it was right on the back end of the recession. And so coming out of the recession, and there were a ton of opportunities to make really creative, interesting investments. And I was just the low guy on the totem pole. But what is just so bizarre about that, in my one year of law school, where I really, it just did not gel with me, that the one class that was just bizarrely easy for me, and you had to do two semesters of it, was contracts. And I absolutely dominated those with very little effort, which was made no sense. My brain, for some reason, just understood those. And so you know, as this lowly analyst, I spent a lot of time reviewing contracts and and spending time on them, but then learning the ins and the outs of investment strategy, methodology of underwriting, ultimately came back this long winded, but ultimately came back to Utah, I got into the tech scene, my cousin is the CEO of a company called weave here. And I was able to join weave as an early employee and actually invest a little bit of money in there because I got lucky with some of the commercial real estate investing. So I became a seed investor there. And that's where I cut my teeth in the tech community. So then wanted to spend some more time in there. Wow, that is just a very interesting path to where you are now. But again, like I said, I just think when you sit down with people that have figured out how to build successful careers, the meandering path is by and large what you encounter. It's very rare that it's linear, that it's what you expected it to be. It's more of how do I find opportunities, learn what I don't like, and then learn what I'm good at and just build from there and grow from there. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned that it was kind of your love for animals that really kickstarted your career. Do you still incorporate that into any of your passions or hobbies? How are you still tapping into that? With three dogs. So (laughs) we're a dog family and I love my dogs. I spend a ton of time outdoors. I haven't been able to have a hobby and I can't even tell you how many years, but within about the past year or two, I've kind of forced myself to create time. I spend a lot of time fly fishing, but outside of that, I don't have a ton of time. And maybe we'll get to this later in the podcast, but I've always viewed Divi and you could replace Divi with any business that I would have started, that there are periods or stages in one's life. And building Divi has always been a means to an end to get back to some of the more important animal-related, conservation-related, ecologically-related initiatives that I am interested in. And I am a firm believer that if you're going to have an impact in everything, you have to throw yourself at it. Dedicating time, energy, capital, it doesn't even have to be a material amount of capital. And so that's where I've been just so squarely focused on Divi right now. 
building it for the past four and a half years and obviously seen it to this fun outcome that we recently announced. And then at some point, I will definitely shift my time and focus back to the conservation efforts. But that's not for a couple of years. I still got a, a few more yeah. good years in me of what I want to do with Divi. So that's awesome. Yeah, we could touch on that more later, but I'd love to hear more about Divi and what inspired you to launch the company. Honestly, I don't think my story is too dissimilar to a lot of high growth companies. Rarely is it that you're just sitting there and saying, I got to think of a big idea. I don't know of many founders where that's kind of the catalyst or the starting point. They're just like, I got to come up with something big. Normally, the story is you're experiencing an acute kind of frustration or pain. You're working your job. And it's through that that you have an idea and you go start to do research and you're like, man, why doesn't this exist? I got to build it. And that was more what my story was. And so after I worked at Weave, I had the opportunity on the investing side to participate in owning a restaurant group of all things. And oh, it's crazy. Yeah, totally crazy. And even then it was crazy. And I felt like I was absolutely crazy for even looking at it. And <laughs> in hindsight, it was about the dumbest decision financially I ever made. But the lessons I learned for it were just absolutely critical to the success of Divi. So I invested in this restaurant group and all of a sudden I found myself being the territory owner of a bunch of states. Then it was my responsibility to build out the restaurants and all that. But originally that was supposed to be kind of kind of the traditional passive income. Like I don't know anything about restaurants. I'm going to hire really smart people and they're going to build it out. And hey, it's just going to kick off a bunch of free cash flow to me. And those restaurants, the franchises are, are going to end up being a great investment for me. And so it was yeah. never designed to be operational. It was always supposed to be passive income. And then about a year, a year and a half into it, it couldn't have been going worse. Like it was oh, no. absolutely the worst investment I had ever made. The, the controls from the top down weren't working and the product wasn't what we wanted it to be. And so then I threw myself into it, like absolutely threw myself into just trying to figure out what the hell was going wrong. And from my earliest ages that I can remember, and that's not hyperbolic at all, I've had almost an irrational belief in myself or confidence that I can just solve problems. Like come hell or high water, when confronted with a problem, I'm going to find a way to figure it out. Like no matter what, I'm going to find a way to figure it out. Even as a little kid, I just kind of had that mentality. And so I threw myself into it saying, no, we're going to figure out how to turn this crap around. And it was during that process of turning it around, which we did, and we ended up turning all the units into profitable units and having a fairly, not a great, but a fairly successful sale of it. And at least it wasn't like my responsibility anymore. But it was during that process of like throwing myself into the operations, into the financial operations, where it was just clear as day that especially for small businesses, the finance tools or the software that you use was so incredibly reactive and outdated that how could you get any semblance of what's going on in my business right now? Am I in the red? Am I in the black? Like, am I paying things out on time? The ability to know who was spending what, where, when, and why in real time just didn't exist. And it wasn't just that it was like expense management software or anything like that. To me, it was the whole finance stack. It's broken. It doesn't exist. You're asked to use 10 different software programs. You're signing into all of them. You're trying to make them kind of connect with each other and, and draw some sense. And I knew though that it was less a product decision at that point, but I knew like clear as day, like lightning bolt moment 
that I knew that what I was feeling and experiencing the fear of not being making payroll of not running out of business. I know that that is a fear that most small business owners, definitely all CEOs, even if you're not just like a a small business owner, you feel that fear. It is acute. It is real. It is the, the stuff that keeps you up at night. And to me, that could be alleviated and solved for with better financial reporting and better financial tools that give you just a real time look and a consolidated look at just what the hell is going on in your business. And so that was the catalyst then for saying that doesn't exist. I'm a researcher by nature. I go down a rabbit hole if I find something that's interesting and I knew it didn't exist. And that felt like a very, very big idea. And so from product idea to starting to working on it was only about two weeks. So I had the idea and it was within two weeks that I was pouring money into it and starting to develop it. Wow. That's crazy. You talk about how outdated and when your bio mentioned archaic, some of those processes were. And it's funny, I was talking to Chad Anselmo earlier this week for another one of our episodes. And he mentioned one of his favorite books talked about bringing a binder clip on the airplane with you so you can work on expense reports. And automatically he was like, thanks to Divi, you know, we don't need to do that anymore. That doesn't make a good CEO. So it's cool to see how Divi has really become a household name within small business and medium-sized businesses. Yeah, we feel fortunate. We had a vision to serve small businesses, business owners, mid-sized businesses also, and give them the tools and the capital that they need to thrive. And it's been really, really fun to execute against that vision. And that's the challenge, right? I think early on in anyone's entrepreneurial journey, you feel like the challenge is coming up with the idea Oh man, that's just a fraction of it. The the challenge is the execution (laughs) against the idea, you know? Just the beginning. What's in the name of Divi? What's behind that? I'm sure that's fairly straightforward. So Divi for us was, it's divvying out of funds, right? So you can think of like budgets, whether it's in a family or whether it's in an organization, you have people, they're out doing their jobs. You have the members of your marketing organization, sales, product engineering, they all have to go do their jobs. But normally they have to wait for their accounts payable team, their CFO, you know, their VP of finance to make financial decisions for them. In Divi, right? they're divvying the funds out. They're empowered to go make the purchases, to track all of that, to automate the expense management, the spend management, and it almost kind of decentralizes the responsibility and then the execution of that. So it's divvying funds out. Okay, interesting. Since founding Divi in 2016, you've made it really clear that your customers and making decisions with them in mind was your priority. And in a recent blog post that was published on getdivi.com, you said, our customers are our true north and they always have been. How have your customers and that mindset of the customer being a priority led the company to where it is today? Not to be cliche, it's just our DNA. Kind of the hallmark of a really great product organization are those that are just consistently on the ground floor with your customers. You are iterating with them, you're interviewing them, you're talking to them, you're A-B testing with them, and you're combining that feedback with a lot of your intuition and your gut. And so we have an incredible relationship from our partnership channels to different integrated partners that we need to make it work. And we work closely day in and day out. We have a massive team, what we call our customer success team or growth executives, that their entire job is to make sure that our customers are engaged with the platform. And so there's just really interesting then 
relationships or flywheel relationships, if you want to peel away from that direct conversation of a customer, but between product and customer success, if you're able to kind of tightly align those where customer success is dealing potentially with helping them scale, helping them grow, alleviating problems or concerns, product is approaching it more from a, how can I solve for those problems, build around those problems and build something new? You're able to arrive at really fast conclusions of what they need. And perhaps your customer doesn't even know what they need. They're just explaining problem sets to you. But because you have all this institutional knowledge from a product perspective, you're then able to build solutions and really elegant software that then checks those boxes of what they need. And so we couldn't build something as innovative as Divi, which is you know, spend management, expense management, accounts payable. It's this consolidated platform, but then also it's all the payment modalities of all the corporate card spend, the ACH, the wires, the checks, then aggregating that in real time. You can't do that crap if you're not listening to your customers day in and day out. It just doesn't work. Uh, it, truly, yeah. to, to belabor the point intentionally, what happens if you're not listening to your customers and you're trying to make a big platform is ultimately you will have built a Frankenstein product, a product that has a lot of pieces, but they don't integrate well with each other, right? They just don't, they don't kind of sing harmoniously with each other. And so that's where the customer's role in this is just so critical that they are just delighted along the way. And so our team's done a good job of that. That's interesting. Divi, I mentioned earlier, has really changed the expense reporting landscape for companies in the US, companies around the globe. And I'm curious how you continue to innovate, how you continue to provide those new solutions for your customers. You mentioned listening to them, but how do you take it further and do you ever consider expanding into- Oh yeah, no, that's a great question. And it has from day one. I never designed or got really pumped up to build an expense management business. What we understood about expense management was it was our Trojan horse into the ecosystem into that finance stack for finance teams. And it was almost easy to pick on because expense reports on both sides, the finance team that has to deal with them, and then the employee that has to fill them out, they're universally hated. Again, like you said earlier, they're so archaic and you're sitting there filling out like manual expense reports, the finance team has to chase you down for 90 days to get you to fill it out, that that felt like almost an unfair advantage for us to pick on that portion first because we knew that if our approach was to not just improve on expense management, but to put it out of business, to like eliminate expense reports, that that would be a powerful Trojan horse from a customer adoption perspective. But from day one, our goal has been to build out the entire platform, a one-stop solution for finance teams. So where the innovation then comes into play has been everything that we built into spend management, all of the controls and the policy enforcement of who can spend what, where, when, and why, different vendor types, different controls on different people. For example, maybe your CFO has more flexibility of where they can spend, but your new hires, they certainly don't have the same amount of permissions or trust. All of that's automated and built into the system. Uh, The accounts payable solutions, which is different payment modalities of managing vendor relationships and payments that you have to track through them. And so the innovation for us, which is there is so much room for continued innovation. I mean, truly, we feel like we're barely scratching on the surface there. Uh, is filling out the rest of that one-stop solution for our customers. Think a finance team has to deal with payroll, that they have to deal with bonuses, with earnings reports. There's just a lot that goes into what a finance team has to do. And ultimately, that's what we do. Yeah, and ultimately, that's where the innovation occurs. And obviously, 
providing experiences that are materially better than what they currently use. Interesting. I'd like to pivot if it's all right with you. You know, the the theme of this season of the podcast is perseverance. What does it mean to you to persevere? That is a great question. I'm going to answer it with a quote. During a really, really difficult time where we looked externally for help, nobody was there. It was just a really difficult time in our business. I have a twin brother and this twin brother served in the military and he gave me probably some of the best advice I'd had and it ended up being a a calling card for our team. And he said, no one is coming. It's up to us. And that's a creed in the Navy SEALs where he was in the Navy for a long time. So perseverance means to me, again, no one is coming is up to us looking inward, having an incredible confidence that you have the talents, the faculties and the skills to solve whatever you're up against and just continuing to work and continuing to grind and knowing that good fruits will come from that. It may not be the outcome that you expected, but good fruits will come from that. And that is just embedded into who we are at Divi. Everybody is an owner. Everybody is a problem solver. We have an irrational self-confidence that we can solve problems. That's incredible. And so widely applicable, not only to careers, but also to your personal life as well. No one is coming. It's up to us. You might have touched on it a little bit at the beginning of that, but what has been the biggest obstacle that you've had to persevere through? I was thinking of that moment. It was a year ago. And I think if you ask most CEOs, especially in hindsight now, those first three months of COVID were absolutely just crazy. A mix of fear of the unknown to immediately you're faced with a fight or flight response of how are you going to respond to this? What do you need to change in your business? Do you have strong business fundamentals? You're questioning everything about what you've built in your business. At that point, we had a lot of investors walk away from promises that they had made to us of a significant amount of capital that was beyond material to the survivability of Divi. And that's ultimately where my brother said, nobody's coming, it's up to us. And that's where we had to look inwards then. And we had to analyze all of the business fundamentals and design a plan where we could become completely self-sustaining without any additional support ever again. And for most businesses, they would say, yes, that's called running a normal business. But when you are, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, and I get that, but by design, Divi is a venture-backed business. And the growth drivers of a venture-backed business, how you allocate capital is just fundamentally different. It's not good or bad. It's just different in building a venture-backed business. And so in those early years where you were totally reliant then on venture capital to continue driving growth, we just had to change our fundamentals. And that's what we did. We had a series of really important aha moments where we focused like madmen across 400 employees on contribution margin and on our marketing payback. And we knew that if we could drive both of those to kind of best in class numbers and drive contribution margin up, meaning can we make more money per dollar on every single one of our customers than we previously were? And can we drive down our marketing payback, meaning can we become profitable on a unit basis or a customer basis even faster that we would have not just survived, but we would learn how to thrive. And that's what we did. A combination of some financial initiatives to some very big product initiatives 
in our mind, we were able to save our business. And, and it went from survivability to thriving, where we became one of the fastest growing companies in the entire United States through Corona. And it was a direct result of 400 people sharing the ownership, sharing the burden and figuring out how to have a best in class unit economics without just spending money like crazy to grow. And it was interesting because as a byproduct, then focusing on those business fundamentals, we grew faster than ever. And so it was such a magical experience for our team members. A really difficult time, though, in that was a part of setting up the right strategy was in the middle of May, we had to go through a riff, right? So a reduction in force and, and let some people go. And the majority of those that were let go, many of which were dear, dear friends, like people that had been there at the very beginning, but it was business units on the sales and marketing side. And that's where strategically, I knew we needed to change the fundamentals of our sales and marketing to be able to improve on the back end. And, and we did, we built a massive automated platform to be able to acquire customers so they could go to the website, sign up and get completely underwritten, get onboarded automatically instead of having to go through a high touch experience with people, which is what it used to be. And so that not only again, saved the day, but it really helped us thrive. And obviously we've been able to rehire a lot of those people. We found jobs for over 90% of those people that we had to let go. And now we've wow. been able to rebuild then many aspects of that sales team as we regrew back into that. That's incredible to be able to find jobs for 90% of those people. I don't think many companies were doing that. And you mentioned the first three months of the pandemic and all the craziness there. I'm sure so many of your customers, those small and mid-sized businesses had really struggled through the pandemic. And you mentioned your employees too, and all the craziness there. What did Divi do for your customers and for your employees over the last year and a half, really, to help them persevere through all the craziness? Yeah. So the first thing that we did is uh, similar. Uh, there are a couple of companies here in Utah that really took a bull by the horns. And I think so many of us just have a service-oriented mindset where we genuinely want to help is all of us stopped what we were doing, even before those initiatives I just described. And we built the first PPP program in Utah. And then others got much bigger than us because that was just their continued focus. But we were able to help thousands and thousands of businesses, especially in that first round of PPP, get their money so that way they could survive. And so every single one of us, wow. there wasn't a single employee at Divi that was working on anything else. We had built massive kind of payment gateway products. So that way the funds could go from the financial institutions, but we could help onboard and help these, you know, mom and pop businesses fill out these crazy forms that the government was asking them to fill out and we would automate it and make it a simple and elegant solution. Uh, and we helped thousands upon thousands of some were our customers, but a huge portion weren't our customers at all. We just wanted to help small businesses. So that was a huge initiative. I already mentioned for those that we had a direct impact on of our employees, it, it was my burden and our burden to make sure that they landed on their feet. Uh, and, and, and we've been able to, at this point, I mean, we're obviously in an incredible situation and our rebound was very, very fast also. So we were able to hire many of them back very quickly. And yeah, it's a, a huge emphasis then for the remaining kind of nine months of this past year has been an emphasis on benefits and on flexibility and time off. I think we were one of the first organizations in Utah to really lean in heavily to full flex work as a mandate instead of like a, just a chaotic thing that was going on. But it was a, a truth. This is who we are now. 
Uh, we see that you're happy. We are an incredibly efficient organization. We still have objectives and outcomes we need to accomplish, but you can do it wherever you want. Spend time with your family. That nine to five kind of element, it doesn't need to be a part of how you think about working at Divi. It's not who we are. And that has been, I think, mentally and psychologically very freeing. And, you know, at this point, I would say that a huge portion, especially of the tech community, has leaned into that. But, you know, I can speak for Divi and Divi employees. That's been a big difference for us. I think you've been able to balance just a totally chaotic, bizarre year much better by being there and being present, you know, instead of being yeah. totally distracted just by work. Well, and the flexibility that you mentioned to work outside that nine to five box that so many of us had fit in. Do you think Divi will go back to that nine to five kind of in the office or are you flex time forever? We're flex time for as long as I'm running things. We haven't seen a drop in efficiency, if anything. I mean, we have some employees that publish essentially all of our results. We can't now after you know being acquired and especially pending close of that acquisition, but we've just grown faster. So there would not be a defensible argument to go back to just requiring everyone to come back. Now, the other side of it is I love being in the office. I love being around people. I feed off it. I genuinely care about them. I want to spend time with them. And there is a very real lack of creativity, kind of the what you miss out on by not just being around each other. And in a startup, especially in a growth phase, you do need that kind of the serendipity of just like ideas bouncing off and around each other. And so naturally people just come in, but it's not a requirement by any means. But we get a bit pretty big portion of people that want to come in because they miss their colleagues. We have a great culture here. We're friends. We get along. And so we get a lot of people coming in. Oh, that's great. You've alluded to it a few times. At the beginning of May, news broke that Bill.com was set to acquire Divi for $2.5 billion. What does Divi look on the other side of that acquisition? And what does this mean for your customers? That's a big question. <laughs> a, a huge kind of legal disclaimer, which I have to say there is, yeah, it's still not closed yet. It deals okay. of our size have to be approved by the Department of Justice. There's a huge regulatory review where it has to go through. And we hope to close that soon. And awesome. it's going through that process. But the design of this is that Divi will remain Divi. It's, we built a special company and Bill.com and Rene Lassert, the CEO of Bill.com, who's just a wonderful man, recognizes how special Divi is, not just from a culture perspective, but for our customers. So very little will change on that front. We'll grow together at some point down the road. We'll be able to merge many aspects of our products together to create Again, I started out by saying my goal was to create a one-stop solution, right? And so we're going to create that together, a one-stop solution. Now, but there are so many synergies and even short-term objectives before that longer-term objective of a technical integration. And that's serving our customers and serving the partners. So customers then, for us, for both sides, now they get a more robust suite of software, right? That's going to work with each other. And they're going to be able to turn off different vendors and different solutions that simply just aren't as good as what Divi and Bill.com offer. And so we're excited to bring that to them where the, the accounting channel and working with accountants is hugely important to both of us. We place a significant emphasis on making sure we know them, what their needs are, because accountants, they manage a one-to-many relationship, right? If you're a business accountant, you're managing maybe 50 to 100 different small businesses. And so this combination yeah. just streamlines their job in a very massive way, which is pretty cool. 
So it's business as usual for a while, especially as we go through the regulatory review. But in, in honest to goodness truth, it's, it's pretty much business as usual even after that. We'll just keep building Divi, what our customers love. Then down the road, we'll figure out how to integrate the product still in a delightful experience. That is just so exciting. Congratulations, by the way. I'm assuming you all celebrated together, hopefully, or will when you're able to. Yeah, to the extent that we can, right? It's uh, at, at the announcement once it was publicly disclosed a few weeks ago during the Bill.com earnings call. The next day, we just had a fun lunch and kind of get together with those that were willing to do that. But then at close, we'll do something more fun, right? Because then it's real. And then you can, then it's not just about Divi celebrating, but then it's Bill.com and Divi celebrating together, which I think is actually the fun celebration. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I have just a couple last questions to wrap up with. In preparing for our interview, I talked to Dean Randall and he mentioned a story that you shared in his Profiles of Leadership class about, I I don't even know how to pronounce it. Gyoza. Gyoza. He told me it was kind of like a pot sticker. Sort yeah, of. so a, a gyoza is like a dumpling. It's a pot sticker, right? It's what you get at a Japanese restaurant. Yeah. Okay. And he said, you shared a story with those students that has really stuck with him. Can you share that with our listeners? Yeah, happy to. This is maybe some of the foundation of why I have an irrational confidence in problem solving <laughs> and asking for things and just proactively kind of going after what I want. So when I was a little kid, I have an older brother. He's four years older than me, and he, his name is Nick. As a family, we were at a Japanese restaurant in Redmond, Washington. And we had, if I remember it correctly, we were close to finishing our meal. And like everyone's sitting there, you know, putting their forks down. And he leans over to dad. He's like, dad, I, I, I think I'd still like another gyoza. Do you think they'd let me get one? And it was then my mom responds to him. And she says, Nick. Is just a gyoza. What she was implying there is, Nick, what is the worst that they can say to you if you ask for another gyoza? The worst outcome possible, like the worst, is that they say no. And if they say no, is it actually that bad? Like if you say, can I have another gyoza, please? And they're like, you know what? No, where we don't have any more or it's time to go. Then you'd say, oh, okay. Like it's the worst response possible that they could have said is no. And I've just found so often in my career that you have to be, even for, I am naturally introverted as a CEO. I do not get energy of being in groups. I know how to turn it on for groups. And I obviously know how to manage stakeholder relationships, all that kind of stuff. But introvert or extrovert, you have to, have to, have to be the architect or take control of your own future. And I found that if you ask for what you need and what you want, you will be blown away at what people are willing to give you. And if you don't ask for it, you cannot be surprised when it's not given to you. That goes from roles to promotions, to comp, to ideas that you want and products that you're building, whatever, it doesn't matter. If you're not willing to ask for it because it's too scary to hear no, then you should not expect to get that thing that you're aspiring to get. And I've just found, again, so often that you'll be pretty blown away with what people are willing to give you if you will just ask for it. Oh, that's an awesome story. How old do you think you were when that all happened? Seven, something like that. And it is really stuck with you and your whole family, it sounds like. It's it's one of those things, you know, it'll be said at like, probably my brother's funeral when he's an old man and my mom's at just a gyoza because it was so foundational to all of us. 
Oh, that's incredible. My last question that I like to ask my guests is, I'd love to hear book recommendations. We talked to such a wide variety of folks on the podcast. What's one book that has stuck with you? Maybe you read it recently. Maybe you read it 10 years ago, but that you would recommend. Okay. This is really good. Really good question. One, I'm actually even going to, this isn't even a caveat. I'll just say it. I don't read business books. Uh, I don't have time. I generally don't feel like they're helpful for me. I recognize they're helpful for a lot of people, but that has not been a part of how I've built myself and acquired skills as a CEO and learned. I'm definitely a student and I try to read. I just don't think business books are what get me there. But there is a book by, it's the autobiography of Albert Schweitzer and it's called Out of My Life and Thought. And Albert Schweitzer, goodness sakes, if he lived right now, I have a hard time imagining him not being one of the most well-known celebrities of all time, just because wow. of what he was able to accomplish during his time as a, a world-renowned physician, as a world-renowned organist, as building organs. He was then, I believe, a Methodist. Anyway, he was a, a high up ranking in their church. He was just an incredible, incredible man. And what I would say about that then, because I already alluded to it, is that Divi or any business, I love Divi. I'm staying in Divi for a freaking long time. But <laughs> building Divi, what I said was a means to an end for the other parts of my life that I'm very deeply connected to and passionate about, like animals and stuff. And where I get that from is actually from this book. So Albert Schweitzer, if I remember it correctly, he recognized early on and that his brain and his skill set was very gifted. Now, I'm not saying that about me. I think I'm very normal. I, I just work hard and have gotten lucky a few times. But he recognized he was very gifted. And he made a promise to himself that between the ages, call it of 18 to 30, I can't remember the exact ages, 18 to 28, 18 to 30, that he was going to work and sacrifice everything for work during those ages to acquire and accumulate whatever skills, acumen, and wealth he needed, because then after that age, he was going to dedicate the rest of his life to serving God, because he was very religious, and then to serving others through philanthropy and medicine. And, and he did it in such a beautiful, powerful way. And he lived up to the promises that he made to himself, and, and truly then dedicated it, it. Well, he was successful in executing against his vision. Right? I talked about that, about us executing against our vision. His vision was, I'm just going to go balls to the wall for 10 straight years. And then I'm going to use all of that to dedicate my life to service. And that just resonates really, really deeply with me. I think it's a great way to think about stages and eras of our life of how to segment them out to almost even compartmentalize goals that yeah. Divi isn't who I am. It's something I love deeply. It's something I work on. And it's something I care about deeply, but it's not who I am. And at some point, it'll be a really wonderful distant memory as I, you know, focus on something else, you know, 10 years down the road. And so, yeah, really, really, it's beautifully written. It's powerful. He's just an expert. And I love learning from like masters of their craft. And that's what he was. And it just resonated deeply with me. Thank you so much for sharing. I'm going to have it to add that one to my list. I haven't heard of it yet. Thank you so much, Blake. It has just been so exciting to hear from you and hear about the career path that you've taken. And we can't wait to touch base with you and in, in that next stage of life and whatever that might look like for you. Thanks. I appreciate you having me. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Eccles Business Buzz podcast. 
As a quick update on this episode, we would like to congratulate Blake on a successful acquisition process. As of June 1st, 2021, Build.com has officially completed the acquisition of Divi for approximately $2.5 billion in stock and cash. Congratulations to the entire team at Divi. If you enjoyed the show today, please subscribe using your favorite podcast player and be sure to give us a rating and review. You can check out more of our content at eccles.link forward slash business buzz. Until next time, go you. Thank you.